Welcome back to America Speaks and our new fall-winter season. We're changing course from our usual interview-style programming to bring you a literary salon, as it were, a spotlight on narrative storytelling with renowned authors, playwrights, screenwriters, poets, spoken word artists, and an improv performer. These shows will be a departure from our previous political discussions. They will dive into rich storytelling with strong characters and unique commentary. Today, I'd like to begin with my journey an intimate close-up of my 20 years on the trail. As we await the results of the historic 2020 election, it bears remembering how we got to where we are today. And no better place to begin than the contested election of George Walker Bush. So with that, I invite you to come along with me as I set out in search of America. I'm squirming through a crowd of hecklers, reaching for an unobstructed view of George Walker Bush's presidential motorcade. I'm too short to shoot over the sea of hands in front of me, all gesturing with their middle finger, jeering at our new president. A frigid wind ushers in a gang of pranksters who pass out pink and green Xeroxed flyers with radical buzzwords to shout out loud as a prelude to their act. The masked punks take their places in a random formation around the U.S. Navy Memorial. I'm smack in the middle of an anarchist plot. Also trapped with me is a delegation from the National Organization of Women, middle-aged women politely condemning the election results. They are holding up their royal blue NOW signs. The anarchist ringleader clad in black appears from nowhere and shimmies up the flagpole. He removes the American flag and hoists a black skull and crossbones in its place. A pyrrhic victory. His minions are in awe of his accomplishment, as if this conquest could reverse the Supreme Court decision. Now the federal tactical police move in on horseback. The foot police roll in sections of a chain-link fence. They ram through our congregation and confine us. The crowd panics. A riot begins. There's no exit to escape. I take what pictures I can, impeded by pushing and shoving, when suddenly I feel a hand slip between my legs and hoist me up over the chain-link fence to the other side. You'll be safe here, the phantom kid says. Now take your pictures. New York City, 2004. You must be the photographer, the media director says, as he escorts me through the theater. Betty Friedan is arriving. Follow me. All it took was a phone call and an offer to donate my pictures, and here I am covering this historic reading of the Constitution. We pass a replica of the Constitution from 1787. People for the American Way pulled strings to borrow this copy for their event today. It's prominently displayed under glass in the lobby of Cooper Union Hall. 
the very location where Abraham Lincoln gave his renowned 1860 speech against slavery. Betty Friedan's flock gathers in a semicircle around her. The maven of feminism moves in slow motion, assisted by a cane, as she pauses in front of each admirer with a nod. She singles out two young girls and looks straight into their eyes. You pay attention. Don't get overconfident. They're going to come back for your rights. Her eyelids sag, reflecting fatigue from the ongoing battle. Her national organization for women is once again picking up their swords. I want to ask her if she thinks we've taken her achievements for granted. When Ruby Dee makes her entrance and the two divas disappear into the green room, inside the theater, a jumble of paparazzi encircle Richard Gere. A pushy news anchor needles him for a sound bout about the upcoming 2004 election. He walks past them with, just you make sure the coverage of this election is right this time. The press love him. I look around the hall, glancing at the audience, and wonder if they're anticipating a moment in history about to take place. Graydon Carter, Lori Anderson, Mandy Patankin, Betty Friedan, Christine Baranski, Bill Irwin, Blair Brown, Ruby Dee, Richard Gere, Kahali Ali, and the chief of the New York Police Department and New York Fire Department all together to recite passages from the U.S. Constitution. Alec Baldwin arrives, a bit damp around the collar, perspiring elegantly from the hundred-plus-degree humidity. Diving into the 25th Amendment, he rouses the audience and volleys his words, tossing constitutional rhetoric out into the house. He stops to consider the meaning of what he just read and reflects, it can be grim, the Constitution. It can be mighty grim. He continues reading the conditions by which the President of the United States can be removed from office, and then the Vice President would then be appointed. He looks up with a smirk, considering Vice President Cheney is President. Hmm, he says. Mr. Baldwin opens his arms and conducts boos from the audience. He gives the Roman thumbs down. I move in close just as Ossie Davis strides onto center stage. He is resolute. His two powerful hands place his script on the podium in front of him. He surveys the crowd as the audience rises to their feet to tribute a legend who has raised the bar on performance. Mr. Davis dips his head humbly to the left, bows to the center, and drops his chin to the right. Amendment 13. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The words glide out of his mouth like proclamations. His basso notes coat the phrases. We can't bear it to come to an end. Our souls are comforted by the sanctity of his presence. When he concludes, 
he waits calmly. His eyes tour the rows of spellbound listeners. He nods his head. Goodbye. I race out of the auditorium, determined to photograph him away from the podium. I reach him just as he strides out of the house. Mr. Davis, can I please take your photograph, I ask. Yeah, you can if you can do it in two seconds, he responds. I aim the camera, but I can't steady my hands. He smiles, and he motions for me to slow down. This is my moment with one of my all-time heroes. Yet, I can only manage to shoot one frame. Autumn 2006, Los Angeles. The protests against the Iraq War have become stale. Yet here we are again, feeling invisible, worn out, and hopeless. Another march sponsored by United for Peace and Justice. I see many of the same faces. They're here to stoke enthusiasm and rouse the first-timers. The organizers are turning to gimmicks to lure crowds. Today, Oren Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, has been flown in from upstate New York to lead a walk for peace down Hollywood Boulevard. Cindy Sheehan has joined with Mike Farrell and the venerable Harrison from Radio's Air America to lead the procession. Hawaiian dancers approach Mr. Gandhi and place an orchid lay around his neck as Tibetan monks trail behind him, playing flutes and chanting, conga drums beat, it's a traveling meditation. Everyone seems soothed except Mr. Gandhi. The chaos is unfamiliar to him. He's beginning to get agitated and sweating. As we arrive backstage, there is a slab of wet cement and a tub of white powder. One of the organizers advances towards Mr. Gandhi and removes his shoe. He submerges Mr. Gandhi's foot into the white powder, then lifts it up and angles his foot towards the wet cement. There is confusion and people are starting to crowd in around him. I am standing next to Mr. Gandhi and he grabs onto my arm tight to steady himself. The crowd surges towards him and he loses his balance and almost falls. He's shaking now as he places his foot into the wet cement. I wonder why is it necessary to make a souvenir of our guest speaker's foot? I step back to give Mr. Gandhi space, and at the same time, everyone crams in wanting to touch a real live Gandhi. I don't like protests, he whispers to me. Regaining his composure... Arun Gandhi takes his place at the microphone and he looks out at the crowd. He speaks of nonviolence. It is the reminder we need. The Gandhi legacy is his burden. Washington, 2007. 
Iraq veterans against the war are waging a demonstration that will culminate in a die-in on the steps of the Capitol building. The momentum is building. I am waiting to get backstage credentials. Behind me is a father who just lost his son in Najif. His hand shakes as he holds high the photograph to commemorate his boy. He turns to me and asks me to take a picture of his son as he holds up the poster of his only child. I want to believe the photographs I'm taking will make a difference. I can't begin to understand the sacrifice these young men and women are making for our country. I'm clearly an outsider and mingle with an apologetic smile. I can see the ghost of this war in the eyes of each soldier. I mourn their loss of innocence. Cindy Sheehan is comforting a grieving mother whose pain has exploded into rage. I take their picture and I explain I would like to use it in my book in the section on protesting war. A hand taps me on the shoulder. It's a freckle-faced army private. He introduces himself. My name is Justin Clinburn. I overheard you talking. Would you please take my photograph for your book? Sure, I say, and snap off a series of images. You see, ma'am, he moves me away from the commotion. I won't go back there for a fourth tour. My mom is kind of old and lives alone in Oklahoma. I'm all she's got. I've got to be here for her now. I know they're going to arrest me because I'm not going back. He looks down at my United Nations press pass. Ma'am, do you think you could write me a letter about me being a conscientious objector? His voice cracks as he turns and looks out at the White House. He's embarrassed. He turns back to me. I could really use your help. He then takes a swig of bottled water and makes sure no one has seen him break down. I remove my sunglasses, not masking my emotions. I'd be so honored to write that letter if only a letter for me could help you. For many years, we continued to protest this war, and I never found out what happened to Justin Clinburn. Until years later, I ran into a soldier who served with him. I learned he never went back to Iraq. Whether it was without consequences, I never found out. But what I know is he did the right thing. Denver, Colorado, August 2008. 9.30 a.m. I pull into a field to park, just one of three cars. I walk up the back road that leads to Invesco Field, where in 10 hours, Barack Obama will accept the Democratic nomination for president. On the main drag, there are blocks of TV crews sandwiched between vendors who are selling every manner of Obama paraphernalia. I buy a commemorative felt flag. The Skybox Grill, a Mexican dive bar, sits overlooking the back of Invesco Field. It's the best view without having one of the coveted 84,000 tickets distributed to Obama loyalists through a controlled lottery. At least I'm only a few hundred feet from the action. 
It's now 10.30 a.m. and the restaurant is empty, except for Al Jazeera broadcasting from a live feed in the back room. I take a table by the window with an unobstructed view of the escalating commotion. Cops and day laborers are now coming in for a taco and a dos equis. Around 1.30 p.m., an African-American family enters in their Sunday best. They wait to be seated, but there's no hostess at the Skybox Grill, so they eventually sit down at a corner table. The young daughter wears a pink and white eyelet dress with a pink sweater buttoned at the neck and shiny new Mary Janes that complement her pink and white tasseled socks. Her braids are tightly bound between pink ribbons and curled into pigtails. Their 11-year-old son pushes in a chair for his mother, standing tall in his dark suit, crisp white shirt, red tie, and polished black loafers. I can't take my eyes off of them. I want to know their story. I approach them and introduce myself. The father invites me to have a seat and tells me they cashed in their savings to take a Greyhound bus from Tallahassee, Florida to Denver. Beaming with pride, he says that witnessing a black man accepting the nomination for President of the United States is something he wants his son and his daughter to always remember. But he seems confused about how he's going to get inside to hear the program. They were told there would be tickets to buy. But everyone I talk to, he tells me, tells me they're sold out. No more tickets. He then explains that he works as a night janitor and his wife has two jobs and they have no more money to spend now. All this way on a Greyhound bus and we're not going to see anything. We'll have some supper. And then I guess we're going to have to turn around and go back home. My heart sinks. Someone lied to them. A three-day trip on a bus to come and watch the speech on a small TV in a worn-out bar? It's now 2.30 p.m. and I venture outside to try and find the family tickets, even if it meant going to a scalper who was selling them for twice the price. In the last few hours, the whole country seems to have shown up here. Thousands are milling about under the assumption they're moving in the right direction. The grassroots campaign feeling is replaced with the faceless registration bank, processing tiers of tickets. The scene's making me feel claustrophobic. I wander towards a clump of trees where I see federal rangers are posing alongside their Humvees. It's a very hot day, and one of them wears a white kerchief on his head. I stroll up and I take a few frames. You gonna vote for that nigger? I hear. Stunned, I put down my camera. Excuse me, I ask him. You heard me, he growls. I stop for a second, not knowing how to respond. Then I say, I would like to take a photograph of you saying that. The tufted-up rangers begin to pose, standing in line with smirks on their faces. I take the picture. Then one of them says, You might want to go down to the bridge. 
We just got word there's some kind of protest down there. You don't want to miss that. Oh, I was so happy to get away from them. I decided to head down to the bridge, all the while trying to see if there's anyone that is milling about selling tickets for the family who is just about to finish their lunch. I'm rushing, and I get to the demonstration. I haven't found any tickets yet. I'm torn between going back to the Sky Bar or getting the photographs of the demonstration, which is why I came there to begin with. So I figure maybe there's time, and I rush down to the bridge where there's about 50 chanting and holding up signs on legalizing marijuana and no war in Iran. Cops are directing the marchers away from the bridge and they sweep in on motorcycles and bicycles. I'm about to leave when I see a cop coming towards me. Suddenly I feel a hand on the back of my neck with a hard push down on the cement. I fall face flat on the ground my two cameras crashing beneath me. Blood is everywhere. I must have been unconscious for a few seconds, and I come to. I can feel that my nose is sliced down the left side. My sight is murky. Can you tell me your name? Someone asks me over and over again. I see my lens is cracked, and there's so much blood. A calm voice kneels next to me, and I hear him tell me it's going to be okay. I am loaded into an ambulance, and we barrel through the crowd to avoid street traffic. What happened? The paramedic asks. I don't know, I answer. She applies a lot of pressure on my nose, which makes it hard to breathe. My head feels like it's swelling. I see a hazy shadow of a cameraman filming me from outside the ambulance. Suddenly, I'm the story on the local news. The ER at this downtown county hospital is crammed. The nurse pries my dented cameras away from me, and she wheels me into an examination room. It's quiet. I sit through what happened and get as far as the march and the motorcycle cops. A floor nurse takes my vitals and hands me an ice pack. Oh, a moment of relief. Lying down, I can feel my radio is attached to my jeans, and I fumble for it, still eager to hear Obama's speech. A young doctor comes in and leans against the bed. So there's not much written down here. How did you do this? I tell him I was pushed by a cop. Is my nose broken? I'm afraid to ask. We're going to fix you up. If it's not broken, we'll release you. You will need stitches. It's starting to sink in. I didn't get the pictures I needed. My camera's kaput, along with my profile. The resident orders x-rays with some pain meds and takes off. I turn up my radio, but it's lousy reception. Through the crackling, I can hear the build-up to Obama's entrance. It's surreal, as if I'm in a faraway country. Outside my door, a young orderly sits at a small computer. When he turns up the volume, I realize he's watching the speech online. Two nurses now join him. Two more orderlies and a few doctors crouch in. Now there's a small crowd around this tiny monitor. 
their ears close to the keyboard, straining to hear. I turn up my radio, thinking maybe my sound is better than theirs. Here we are in our own intimate gathering. I have no way to record this, but it would have been a perfect photograph. I memorize every detail as if I were the camera, picking up the nuance of black, white, and sheer gray outlining the compact formation of the staff, silhouetted by a wisp of muted light from the hospital corridor. As Barack Obama's words connect to each of us, people of every creed and color from every walk of life, our dreams can be one. I am consoled. This was a moment I will always remember. Washington, D.C., 2009. I have been at the National Mall since 3 a.m., huddling with strangers in a raw wind. The bite of winter grates along the Potomac. We wait for sunrise. I am chilled to the bone and relinquish my spot overlooking all of Washington because I have got to get a cup of hot coffee. The hospitality tent is a welcome haven, but the coffee is tepid and weak. I head over to the Lincoln Memorial. I feel closer to the people down here. A Nigerian woman is standing beside me, anticipating the inauguration of Barack Obama. She's dressed in a thin cloth coat and layers of vibrant material wrapped around her head. I ask her if she isn't freezing. And she replies, oh, no, my dear, today I have a fire in my belly that will warm the world. Day is breaking over the capital as crowds begin to pour in from every entrance of the park. We are standing shoulder to shoulder, part of record-breaking numbers, attending a U.S. inauguration. Clusters of people settle in on blankets, waiting for the viewing screens. By now, it's 10 a.m., and I have already taken 675 photographs, but my body is numb. Quite frankly, I've had enough. I knew that without the proper credentials, I wouldn't be able to get close to the inaugural podium, so the day before, I booked a brunch reservation at the Hay Adams Hotel. I just don't think I can bear the cold another minute, so I head out and ricochet from person to person until finally I reach the exit on Pennsylvania Avenue. The Hay Adams Hotel is directly across the street from the White House. As I approach the barricades, two Secret Servicemen block my way. I explain I have a reservation. They look me up and down in disbelief because of the way I'm dressed, but my name is on the list. Inside the hotel lobby, the concierge insists on taking my two parkas, all my layers, scarves, hats, gloves, and she maneuvers me towards the ladies' room. She stands outside the door while I strip down to my slacks and turtleneck sweater. I exit looking like a proper guest. She then escorts me to a party at the bar. Staff members of Congress are hosting this brunch. I don't ask how I was included, I just sit down. I am beginning to thaw out. I sip a little champagne when I hear, Miss Lampert, may I have a word with you? It's the hotel manager. 
He tells me he's delighted to include me today, but I must agree to sign that I won't take any photographs of any of the guests at the hotel. Oh, I'm happy to sign anything to avoid being sent back out there into the cold. The congressional staffers are very friendly. We sip champagne, eat lobster rolls, and we're chatting. There's a live feed of the ceremony in the background. Everyone quiets as Aretha Franklin sings, My Country, Tis of Thee. Then we all rise to our feet and hold our collective breath as Barack Obama, the first African-American, is sworn in as our 44th president. After the ceremony, I am talking with the woman sitting next to me. I admit to her, I feel like a sissy. I was too cold to stay and photograph the swearing-in at the mall. I didn't get the pictures I came for. She has an idea. What if you were to get a picture of President Bush leaving on Marine One? I hear he's leaving soon. I nod. I would love that. She makes a call to a friend who's hosting the BET TV luncheon on the roof. I race up there. Security at the entrance is non-existent, so I walk right in. Two federal agents are guarding the White House from the terrace roof. Yellow tape signifies the area is off limits. I approach an armed guard just as his walkie-talkie squawks, Marine One is departing. As the helicopter comes into view, I plead, oh, please, let me just get this one photograph. I'm about to go on with my spiel when he reaches behind him and lifts the yellow tape. I guess I could just look the other way, he murmurs. Marine One passes right in front of me. I'm a few seconds too late for the close-up, but I manage to get Marine One as it trails off into the distance and disappears. No one else on the roof seems conscious of George Walker Bush's departure. After the sound and the fury of the last eight years, G.W. Bush exits Washington unnoticed. The chant rises over traffic and construction pounding, the noise of Lower Manhattan. I follow the refrain. The volume intensifies as I walk up Broadway. We got sold out, the banks got bailed out. And a stream of occupiers parade around Zuccotti Park, holding up cardboard signs with handwritten slogans. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Populism, not corporate fascism. The NYPD stands on the curb as a precaution, ready to quell any unrest. I'm told the same cops have been here from the beginning. It must take stamina to stand here all day and not be affected by so much emotion. A young man walks up to a motorcycle officer with his sign, NYPD, we're here for your future too. The officer looks him straight in the face and he nods because that's all he's allowed to do. My initial reaction to the camp is amazement. The space doesn't look bigger than a basketball court. Yet from this small outdoor plaza, Occupy Wall Street has gained the world's attention. They've built their own city in here. 
with so many streaming through, it's hard to distinguish between who are occupiers and who are observers. A guy wearing a cap is bent over his laptop, fielding questions from people with clipboards. He's one of the organizers. They huddle like Roman senators deliberating the issues for tonight's assembly. Five weeks into their campaign of fighting for the 99%, the occupiers are creating a spectacle. Hundreds of people are here today to see what it means to devote oneself to a community where everyone is listened to and everyone feels equal. I wonder if everyone here does feel equal. Living in Liberty Square can't be easy. It's cramped, cold, and although I see cleaning crews dumping trash, there are no porta potties, and the population is growing every day. Organized chaos hums. Multitudes mill around. A group arranges the next rally. A welcome committee speaks to newly arrived foreign students. A young man sorts donations of blankets and clothing. It feels like a war effort. Well, in a way it is. Along the stair railing, marionettes hang. Our founding fathers, Mayor Bloomberg, Bank of America, Exxon Oil. A girl finishes scenery and waits for her audience. A mic check is in progress at the top of the steps at the north entrance. Each phrase repeats and passes along in a message. The announcement urges all to participate in an action with the delegation that has just arrived from Egypt. They have come to stand here united with the occupiers. The crowd reserves judgment and quickly bestows the thumbs up. Fingers wiggle in approval. At 4 p.m., the announcement repeats, we will march to Wall Street and repeats again in solidarity with our Egyptian brothers and sisters. This is what I came to photograph. I walk back up the steps to get a panorama of the main drag. In the center, a well-stocked library is set up next to the food tables. Medic headquarters, press and media tent, therapy hut, crafts, information desk, on-site astrologers, lawyers, counselors are all here working to provide assistance. I weave through conversations and heated debates. Their emotional temperature draws me in. Lenny stands at the gateway to where the tents are set up. He offers me the daily news sheet. Hey, if you ain't gonna read it, then give it back. I take the paper, and then I take Lenny's picture. He's originally from Tel Aviv. Lenny's been out of work for eight years, forced retirement from Smith Corona. Now he's a career radical and proud of it. The living quarters are on the sidelines, makeshift campsites, with lounge chairs in front to give people a porch area outside their tents. I see many lack basic needs and use cardboard as protection against the damp ground. Plastic sheeting makes a good tent. I try not to be conspicuous as I take photos. Eyes look out at me, the people that don't want to be on display. Some have made a journey here on Greyhound buses, and some are New York's homeless. They are all here to stage a revolution in downtown Manhattan. I venture to South Liberty Square, the rougher hood at Occupy. Drums and makeshift instruments pulse rhythms that attract office workers at the end of the day. It's a party atmosphere, not so political. 
raw and wild, maybe a little mean. The Egyptians are now leading a march, repeating in unison with the occupiers, we are the 99%. This is what democracy looks like. As we walk down Broadway, the police motorcycles rev up and suddenly more cops appear following us. The procession lines up with people holding up their newly painted signs. People power, how are we gonna get it? I run alongside. The collective voices become defiant. The march heads to Wall Street, where there are cement barricades and the bull stands guard at the fortress of the New York Stock Exchange, now closed to the public. Another mic check begins, and one of the Egyptian freedom fighters calls out, we are the 99%. They will never cut out our ideas. We have nothing to lose except our shame. It's gotten dark now, and I'm out of film and weary. But I leave this battleground bolstered by the courage of these young revolutionaries. I may fear for their future, yet the occupiers have woken up America. November 2020. Here we are at the conclusion of the most historic election in our nation's history. And I felt compelled to look back on the power of one voice. And there is no one else that I met in my 20 years on the trail who truly embodied the power of one, like Viviette Applewhite. Viviette Applewhite, a 93-year-old African-American woman, is committed to her right to vote. In 2012, Republicans waged a campaign to minimize the ballots cast by minorities. Viviette challenged the governor and secretary of state of Pennsylvania, and her case drew national attention. I found Viviette's phone number in the directory, and I placed a call. She agreed to see me, so I got on a plane and I went to Philadelphia. Even with my GPS, I had trouble locating Viviette's nursing home in South Philly. I called to tell her I was running late and apologize when she said, where are you, dear? I'm having terrible chest pains and the ambulance is on its way. I don't want you mistaking my picture. When I arrived at Viviette's apartment, the door was ajar, spiritual music blaring. I found Viviette bent over her electric wheelchair, searching for pills that she had dropped. Help me here, dear. I don't want the hospital to mix up my medications. They get so confused. I helped Viviette get organized. With the ambulance on its way, there was no time to fuss. So Viviette, still dressed in her caftan and barefoot, looked straight into my lens. She chatted me up a bit, and I clicked off six frames. And then she explained to me how her case got all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. You see, it all started when she was robbed in the market, and her purse with all of her identification was taken. Viviette had voted at the same precinct for over 25 years, and without the identification, she would now not be allowed to cast her vote. 
and she would not stand for being denied her opportunity to vote for Barack Obama in 2012. Viviette's complaints were loud and persistent, and finally, her case came to the attention of the ACLU and National Voting Rights Advocates. Viviette Applewhite's heart may be weak. After all, she's taken part in a lifetime of activism. Determination pulses through her, even at 93. She is unafraid to hold her government accountable. Viviette's one-woman stand to ensure her vote helped to protect the voting rights for countless Pennsylvanians. Through my lens, I marveled at this woman who was taking on the state of Pennsylvania. Throughout my journey, I have been seeing activism in terms of numbers, decibels, and headlines. But it took Viviette Applewhite to demonstrate the perfect example of what I have been looking for, the power of one. To conclude today, I want to read what Viviette Applewhite told me, which truly today stands as a clarion call for all of us, because this is what democracy is about. People built our nation. Our republic is in the hands of the people. A word of caution to politicians. You better take us seriously. Because if you don't believe in us, if you don't believe in the power of the people, you will lose your jobs. I have lived in this country for almost a hundred years, and I have seen what it takes to get the politicians to make laws that help the citizens. I learned this marching with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We must remind ourselves every single day to fight for our rights. If we don't back down, if we continue to stand up for our rights, then and only then do I have all the faith in the world for our democracy. Mine, dear friends, your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have to create a more perfect union. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of our limited edition narrative storytelling, America Speaks. Please come back next week when we are proud to present renowned artist and author, Lou Beach. And until then, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. Ooh.